a couple of weeks ago, we uh, had a devotion at our, our uh, band practice talking about uh, Philippi and talking about Thessalonica and Paul's journeys. That's, that's a picture of John's second missionary journey. He kind of followed a pattern where he would go to a place, he would teach for three Sabbaths, and in many of the places, of course, the Holy Spirit was working. He was building churches there. God, Christ, was building his church. So they'd go. Paul would teach for three Sundays. Sometimes he'd stay longer, sometimes shorter. Most of the time he'd get chased out then by the Jews. Kind of a pattern. And, you know, Jesus told him that at the beginning, how much Paul was going to have to suffer for him. And he was all in on it. He wanted it. He wanted to preach. So he got to uh, Philippi got booted out of there, got to Thessalonica. We're going to be talking about uh, the letter to the Thessalonians today. He spent three weeks, as was his custom, three Sabbaths there. And again, the Jews got all stirred up, got jealous, and kicked him out of there after three weeks. So we talked about that in our devotion. But the, the fact that Paul, in those three weeks' time, taught some very deep things about eschatology, about end times there. Our thought is, well, what should we teach like in a short time? Isn't it a little soon to teach, you know, about end time stuff? Shouldn't we just stay with the basics? But Paul didn't think so. I don't think so either. It seemed like three weeks time he taught some deep things about eschatology, about the end times, and we're going to look at those today. So thought for the morning is the believer is not to be shaken or anxious <coughs> despite deception, which is coming, even, know, even knowing that the future for the world holds great judgment from God, but rather to stand strong in faith and in the word with joyous anticipation of our gathering together with our Lord Jesus Christ, which will happen. So let's start. It's challenging and it can be long, so let's get going. (laughs) Verse 1 says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, So he starts right there to reveal two things that are in view here and two separate things. The coming of Christ, which is him coming back to the earth in power and great glory, and our gathering together to him as the church, which is the rapture of the church. Two things in mind. So those are big topics, right? And so uh, even though filled with end time teaching these letters, which Paul wrote back from Corinth by the time, my map's gone, but by the time he ended up, he was in Corinth. That's where he got these reports from the Thessalonians that he, they were having trouble. So he wrote letters back from them, these two letters. They were written around 51 AD, uh, just a few months apart. So they were early, uh, some of the earliest letters, but they contained all these things about end times. So it's, Paul thought it was important, and I do too. His, but his tone in that wasn't about, a, you know, an eschatology lesson. It wasn't an end time seminar. It was pastoral. Paul's tone in his message was pastoral rather than an eschatology lesson. He had a heart for these people. He didn't want them to be upset, anxious, fearful, just like he would th- want the same for us. He doesn't want us to be that way, not fearful about things and what is going on in our world today. So what was the issue? Verse 2 says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. 
So the issue with these believers then in, in Thessalonica was that they thought that they had already entered this time period, the day of the Lord. They thought they were there. The day of the Lord would be another word for the tribulation. We would think of it as the tribulation, that seven-year time period after the rapture of the church where God will bring judgment. So again, he wants us to be composed, and that's what Paul talked about. He wrote his letter back so that they would be at peace. They'd be composed. They wouldn't be anxious or fearful within themselves or within their congregation, with their fellowship of their believers. He wanted them to be composed. And we know verses that regard that, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, of course, kind of the, the bedrock verse about that, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. So when we get into that anxious point, and especially we could, I get there a lot, and we get there, and especially these days as you look around, we can get to the anxiety point. We should pray. That's his command to us, pray. Don't scramble around trying to see how I can fix it or worry or you know, run around with a, with a troubled heart. Pray, and God will give you peace. He promises that. So he said that he didn't want him to be quickly shaken from that composure by either a spirit, message, or letter. So those three things that were trying to encroach on this early church right off the bat. So we're 51 AD, already deception and, and wrong teaching is trying to come into the church right away. So you can figure that's roughly 2,000 years ago. It's been going on ever since. We have to stay in the Word. So truth uh, is, uh, even deception can can appear spiritual. Deception that's coming into the church might seem like some kind of truth. We have to be careful. In this case, it was either maybe a word from the Lord, somebody had got a new revelation they thought, or maybe it was a false teacher coming in to come and bring some teaching along that said, hey, we're, we're, in, the, we're in this day of the Lord time, you better, better be careful. Or even, he says, possibly a forged letter. So Paul was getting reports back. He was in Corinth, got a report back from Thessalonica that said, hey, these, these folks said that you sent them a letter that said that they're already in the day of the Lord. He said no. So he writes back. He wants to make sure they know the truth. So he sends this letter back, and that's what we're looking at today. It's chapter 2 of one of the letters that he sent back to Thessalonica to give him comfort. So he said, that is not me. None of those things are for me. We need to go back to the truth, to God's word, to make sure we stay there. But so what was, the, what was the problem? What was it about? It was about a timing event regarding the end time. So they thought that they were in the day of the Lord. And so today too, right understanding of eschatology or end times teaching in the scriptures matters. It does matter. Some will say it doesn't. Paul thought so, and the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write these things thought so too. So that's God's word to us. Paul's counter to that was to point him back to Scripture, to the apostles' teaching and to the Old Testament teaching. Those were God's word. Knowing that word will keep us from deception. So again, their worry was that they had already entered the day of the Lord. So why is that a problem? Maybe think about it today, too. What Would that be a problem for us? We know some teaching about the end times. We know what's going on in the world. Would it be upsetting to us to think that we had entered 
that seven-year tribulation period? Of course it would. We would, for one thing, we would think we missed it. We thought we thought we knew what was going on here about end-time theology. We thought uh, the rapture happens first, right? Well, Paul taught that it did. But the, he, he comforts them by talking about why they are not in the day of the Lord. So it's not a single day. Biblically, the term is used to describe a time when God brings judgment onto a people or to Israel or to a country. The day of the Lord can mean that. It's still a time, but it means most of the time means judgment from God. He talked about it in his first letter to, the, to these Thessalonians. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 3, he says, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. I wish that would be true for all of us. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night, it's coming, while they're saying, peace and safety then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Again, I wish verse 2 could be written to the church at large today, saying, you yourselves know full well that the day the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. A majority, maybe not a majority, but a large part of the church doesn't believe that. We need to study prophecy but much of the church rejects prophetic teaching. And we'll see what the results of that is as we look further on. So the, again, the word day, day of the Lord, can be used to signify a period of time. And in this case, it does. I'll just uh, bring in one Old Testament passage here. Isaiah 13, 9 through 11 says this. And these are, these are things that Paul came into Paul's mind to understand and know what the day of the Lord means. The, the Old Testament is full of passages that way. This is just one. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Sounds like Matthew 24. Verse 11, thus I will punish the world. So he's not talking to Israel here. He's talking about the world. He'll punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. So don't, be, don't lose heart. When you look around at the world thinking there's no justice, there will be justice. God is going to bring justice one day and it will be serious. So the time he's talking about here is the 70th week of Daniel. If you're familiar with that, Daniel chapter 9. If not, we're going to start Daniel in mid-September, so come and listen. So it's the great tribulation Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24, Luke 21, uh, Mark 13, all parallel passages that describe these events. And it's also the Revelation chapter 6 through 19. It goes in detail to to describe to us that coming time, that seven-year tribulation time that's coming on the world. We would know it by the title, the tribulation. It's going to be the most horrific time in human history. That's what Jesus said. Matthew 24, 21 and 22 says this, and this is Jesus talking. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And here's how bad it is. 
Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Think of that. This time that's coming on the earth, if, if he wouldn't have stopped it, if God wouldn't have intervened, every person alive on earth would be dead. Every single person. That's what it would be like. We can't even imagine it. But he cuts it short so that there will be some living men and women to walk into that millennial kingdom to start that up. That's why he cuts it short. The characteristics of that day of the Lord are um, great. Talks about a thief in the night, secretly, unexpectedly, suddenly, destructively. Uh, those are things that he talks about this day coming on the earth. You would think everybody would be awake and knowing about it, right? This is not talking about the rapture. It's talking about judgment coming upon the world. But they're just oblivious. They're walking around, diverse, diverting here and there with, with sports and hobbies and you name it, job, anything you can think of, just carrying on, thinking everything's good, and then judgment's going to come to the world. Seven years worth. It's inevitable, inevitable and irreversible. It talks about that labor pains. Uh, we all know that. Only you women have experienced other mothers, but... Uh, it's a, it's a process that God has made in women. So when it's time for that baby, when that starts, it's going to finish. Once it starts, look out, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come to an end. And it's irreversible. Once it starts, you can't stop it and turn it back and go, wait, let's wait. Let's, let's wait till another time. No. It's the process God made. And so that's what he's talking about in this judgment is once it starts, it's going to be quick. It's going to be all these things that it talks about. So it's supposed to be a comfort to them, right? So not sounding too comforting so far, but he's trying to describe to them that they are not going to be in this time. That's a terrible time. Uh, one of the reasons is that he did teach him in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and the Bible teaches in other places that the church will not be in this tribulation time, that the rapture will happen before that event. And so you just might think about the fact that if, if, if Paul had taught that it wasn't pre-trib rapture, why would they be upset? What, what would they have to be upset about? Why would they think, hey, I'm in the day of the Lord, I'm in the tribulation? Well, if he had taught, well, yeah, you're going to be there for half of it, three quarters of it, all the way to the end of it, why would they be upset? It's because he taught that the church is taken out before the tribulation. So he does comfort, though, by telling them some truth. He goes from prophetic deception to prophetic truth. That, and that's what we need to do. And we need to understand what's going on in the world and in our lives. We need to go to the scriptures. We need to listen to what God says about what's true. He's the only place we can go. So we look at verses 3 through 8. It says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. That's the day of the Lord, the tribulation. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Don't you remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So this is face-to-face -face teaching that Paul had brought to them about 
end times. And, and maybe a little over three weeks, he was bringing these things to these new Christians. So uh, we need to do that. We need to understand what end times teaching is about. And so verse 6 says, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Don't you feel that there's, this world is looking for some kind of leader to lead him out of this mess that we're in? I mean, we're just ripe. The world is for somebody to fix it. We're descending into chaos in the world. I've seen it. I'm old enough to see how it's gone from relative order to just almost demonic chaos. Younger people, especially those who have been brought up, deceived into uh, higher education, public, state, they don't get it. They don't see the problem in some ways. But we do. We see how it's descending into chaos. But every detail of the course and timing of human history, physical or spiritual, has been predetermined by the sovereign, our powerful God. And that includes this Satan's man, this Antichrist person that we're going to talk about here, this lawless one, the Antichrist. God, speaking of himself, says this in Isaiah. Isaiah 46, 9, God says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God, There is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, he says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God is not going to get part of it done. As much as possible that he can get done, he's going to get it all done according to his power, his will, his character and nature, he will get it done. One other quote there, uh, Arthur Pink says about God's sovereignty, nothing in all the vast universe can come to pass otherwise than God has eternally purposed. Here is a foundation of faith. Here is a resting place for the intellect. You don't have to leave your brain behind. Here is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. It is not blind fate, unbridled evil, man or devil, but the Lord Almighty who is ruling the world, ruling it according to his own good pleasure and for his eternal glory. That's what matters, God's glory. That came from a book, The Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink. It will be in our library soon if you would happen to want to go and read that book. Our library is, is improving vastly, so give it a shot. So Paul reveals two things that must happen before the tribulation begins. The apostasy of the church, for one, and the revealing of the Antichrist, too. So the apostasy comes first. A denial by the church of the truth of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, to deny those things and turn away and bring up their own doctrines, their own truth, deny, to deny biblical authority. That is apostasy. Some say it's already here. And to some degree, it is here. There's, it just grieves me to see uh, one after the other of different denominations and churches who I thought would be solid and just have caved or gone off the rails and go, what? You wouldn't think that would ever happen, but it is. But that's biblical. That's what's going to happen before the end. The church is going to fall away. Sadly, that's the truth. Jesus Christ is building his church, but he also says 
in his timing, there's going to be a time of falling away for the church right before that tribulation time. Here's one example that's just, it came to me a couple of weeks ago, and I just thought maybe this is kind of the epitome or, or one sign. And it's uh, drag queen Flamy Grant tops the Christian music chart. It's an article I read. And this is the iPhone Christian music chart. She's, and, and I, I read some articles, so it wasn't just a, you know, false article out there about someone. There's a history. He has a history with the church, but came out, but came back into the more progressive uh, church. He He says, people don't want to tell you, or people want to tell you, you can't do that, Grant says, like drag in church. You can't do drag in church. You can't do drag, period. But I can. There's churches that are there. That's apostasy from God. So the Bible teaches that there will be that before the tribulation. We see signs of it, but it's not fully here. So continuing on then, just in those same verses, second, we see that the man of lawlessness will be revealed. So apostasy first, then the lawless one revealed. So neither of those things have happened yet. Those are still future to us. It was future to the church in 51 AD. Here we are roughly, say, 2,000 years later, and We're still not there. We're still waiting. The tribulation has not arrived yet. We're still waiting. So we're not in it. And those are signs that Paul gave so that we also would know that we're not there. The lawless one, who is it? We can tell by the description that it is the Antichrist of 1 John 2, 18. This is what John says probably maybe 30, 40 years later. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, the Antichrist, even now many Antichrists have appeared. For this we know that it is the last hour. Boy, that's telling, isn't it? When clear back then he says it's the last hour. I know Jesus said that we were in the last days, and in Hebrews it says we're in the end times already then. So we just must be about right in the last minute. Seems like, well, that that would mean good news for us if the rapture would happen today. So again, this, this, this evil man, this empowered man by Satan, this is the little horn of Daniel 7, the prince who is to come of Daniel 9. And so do again, I, I'm serious. I'm, I'm excited about going through what Daniel has to say about these things, and we will be talking about them soon. But they are right there in the scriptures, also in Daniel 9, performing the very act that we see here, takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That is what the Antichrist will do at the middle of that seven-year tribulation point. He's going to start by getting them their temple up on the mountain. He's going to allow them to do their, the Jews to do their sacrifices and worship. And then in the middle, bam, he's going to take over and say, no, no, I'm God. You're stopping all your stuff. I'm God. You're going to worship me or die. So we talk about more confirming uh, prophetic truth. We keep wanting to feed truth into our minds and hearts so we stay solid on what's going on in the future. So we see we're not there yet. We're not in that tribulation. The Antichrist has not been revealed yet, but why? Verses 6 through 8 talk about it. It says, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then 
that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So in one verse, he says he's coming, bam, no, he's, he's done. So I like that. I like that the way that it's presented, Paul, the Holy Spirit brings it to say, oh yeah, the Antichrist is coming, oh, he's here, bam. Jesus Christ slays him at the end. So it's going to be a short time. It's going to be devastating and, and horrible for the earth, but it's going to be short. So we're not going to go too long into this, but uh, verses 6 and 7 talk about this restrainer. There's a lot of different opinions uh, out there, biblical scholars who think different things about it. I've read those. Uh, I have my conviction about what it is, and that's what I'll give you today. But in, in 6, it says, you know what restrains him now? So that would be impersonal. And then verse 7, he who now restrains. So there's this combination, kind of this idea of two, of maybe a force that's involved and people or a personal person. After a lot of study of the alternatives, I believe that that restrainer is the Holy Spirit in us, the church. That we are salt and light in the world. That's what Jesus calls us. We are preserving the earth. We're holding back the evil that could come. All God has to do is just let his hands off the earth and evil and devastation would just flood in. That's what he says. But the restrainer is us. The Holy Spirit is in the world, in us. We're, the Bible says we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The believer is that salt and light for truth, for righteousness, for right and wrong in the world. And in, in wherever we are, we are in some form restraining. We, maybe we think, oh, I'm not doing much. But we are. The church is holding back evil in the world, and it's holding back God's allowance of this lawless man to come into the world. So we are the restrainer. So I believe that the rapture of the church is going to be that line. It's going to be that line where the restrainer is taken away, and that Antichrist will be revealed. He will come. He will take in for seven years. Thankfully, again, it's going to be short. Jesus Christ will slay him with the breath of his mouth. We talk about some destiny here. Talk about maybe three destinies. The destiny of the Antichrist, we see what that is for him. He's going to be slain by Christ, tossed into the lake of fire. So what about the, the Christ rejecter? What's their destiny? Verses 9 and 10 say, that is the one who is coming in accord with Satan, the activity of Satan, with all power, signs, and false wonders, with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. In some ways, as I've studied through, I felt like this was kind of the anti-John 3.16 verse because we know that God so loved the world that he gave Jesus to die for sin so that anyone who would believe in him would be not perish, but have everlasting life. These ones perish. And why do they perish? Because they did not believe the gospel, the love of the truth, so as to be saved. We are entering into, this t in a, into a time of deception that has never, ever been approached in the past. The wicked use of AI technology that's coming on the world in a flood false science that's been around for decades, that there is no God, that we're here by accident. So evolution lie. False religion. We have cults proliferating all over the place. Mormons are growing like crazy and others. And even evidence proving that aliens are among us. Uh, <laughs> five years ago, 
you'd have been a joke if you'd have, if you'd have been out there saying, hey, hey, aliens, aliens. You'd have, <laughs> but, but today it's like it's almost upside down on that. If you don't go along with all this alien evidence, you're going to be the one that's laughed at. It's like, hey, it's real. I believe it's a demonic deception along with all these other things to tell people a lie about what's real in the world. One article I read talked about how that was going to affect uh, alien presence in the world could affect world religion. What are we going to say if the aliens really are here? That's going to wreck our whole religion, right? No. But that's what they would like to lie to the world to say. All right, keeping on here. Many people throughout the church age, including now, will perish and spend eternity in hell for rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's not about whether they were a worse sinner than I am or anybody else. It's not about that. We all are there. We all are sinners before God. None of us deserves to be saved. But it's because people will not receive the love of the truth, the gospel. That's why they're not saved. So let me say, if you have heard the gospel, if you're resisting, thinking you have all the time you want, be warned that God is not obligated to pursue you one step further. Turn and repent now. God could be holy and righteous and good and not save a single person in the world. But he is loving. He is merciful. He is gracious. And so he will save. But he's not obligated. He is God. He's not obligated. So if he's tugging at your heart to come, you come. You do it today. You repent today. You might not have another day. Don't put it off. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 says it. Talking about uh, at the acceptable time, I listened to you on the day of salvation. I helped you. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. It's today. So we've looked at a lot of uh, hard reality about destiny of uh, the Antichrist, uh, Christ rejectors. But what about the believer? How about the believer's destiny? And so we look at 13 and 14 and say, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So up until now, Paul's been seeking to try and put him back on solid ground as to these end times uh, thinking, but finishes with these most glorious truths. He contrasts all the horrors of this tribulation and time and event with the glorious reality of being in Christ. That's where we want to be. And, and why would you want to be anywhere else besides in Christ? These, these two verses are almost like a mini systematic theology lesson is what I've read in the study. And if you would compare them to Romans chapter 8 and that golden chain that Mark has taught a number of times, this almost follows that to the letter. But it talks about, first of all, us being beloved by the Lord. He loved us first. We didn't love him. He loved us first. He chose us from the beginning for salvation. You have to get your mind around that. If you, if you believe the scriptures, you believe that God chose you and he came for you. 
That's why you're saved. You praise him from your heart. You praise him every day because he chose you. He chose me for salvation in spite of the wreck that I am in the flesh and you. He came and let us see the truth. He let us see how bad we needed him to repent and be saved and to call out to him so that Christ can come and save us. That's what he did. That's the glory of being in Christ, being in the church. That is the glory. The other part, we don't want any part of. We don't want to be those that won't receive the love of the truth so we won't be saved. We receive it. We love it. We love him and we love the truth. It says in the future then that we will gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, it reflects in Roman 8 that we absolutely are like we're already glorified if we're in Christ already. We're as good as there. So that's the contrast. That's where we want to be. So he finishes off in verse 15 to say, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. You can see as we look through this how dangerous it is to have wrong teaching in the church. It's upsetting. It gets churches off track. It gets them into the wrong place. So know your source documents. When you listen to some teaching, make sure it's biblical teaching. Go to the scriptures first. Go to the Bible so that you know that whatever it is else you're looking at, some commentary, some message that you're getting from somewhere. Make sure it, li- it follows the scriptures. Make sure it does. You have to know the Bible to know whether you're hearing truth or error. I loved how uh, our VBS program, what it brought to these kids. It was so awesome. And just that verse, Second uh, Thessalonians 2.15, reminded me of Ephesians 6.13 that we went over and over that week. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. That's what our heart should be in these days. Yeah, there's going to be hard times coming. I guarantee you. I'm not a prophet. It doesn't take much to look around and know that is true. But we don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to lose our composure because we know Christ. We're in Him. And we know the Word. We know the Scriptures to know what's true. We know what's coming. And we know that He'll save us from everything. So our call in these challenging days then is the same as the call to these Thessalonians living in a hostile city. Stand firm. Hold on to the Word of God, His living and authoritative Word to us. So stand firm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how blessed we are today to know you, how blessed we are to have your word, the scriptures you preserved for us, O Lord. How grateful we are that we have that rock-solid foundation. That's why you preserved it, so we couldn't be blown here and there by doctrine from every area. And it is out there, Lord, but we are so grateful that we don't have to be blown around. We have your word and we have you. Your Holy Spirit lives in us as believers. Oh God, how, how wonderful, how amazing, and how grateful we are that that is true. We need you every day and you are there every day. So praise you, God. Praise you. Be with us as we continue on 
to do your will. Give us strength, wisdom, and courage uh, to do it the way you want. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.